to Community Christian Anywhere. We're an online community of people who believe that even though life can be difficult, complicated, and tiring, Jesus offers a life that is easy, light, and full of rest. And the life Jesus offers isn't simply membership to a religion or a personal philosophy of life, but He offers to transform us into people who live and love just as He did in this world. So we want to be a community who are committed to loving everyone just as Jesus had loved us. So no matter who you are, what you believe about God, or what you've done, we want you to be part of this Jesus movement, to love everyone always. And what we hope is that throughout our time together, you experience that God loves you and cares about your life. In fact, we say all the time, no matter what you think about God, we believe He can't stop thinking about you. We believe He is for you and He only has good things for your life. And so no matter where you're watching this from, on your phone, on your lunch break, hopefully not while you're driving, we believe that God is present with you right now. And if you can stay open to that, I believe He wants to make Himself real to you. And if at any point during this video you have a question or maybe you feel God speaking to you and you want to speak to somebody about that, there will be a number on the screen the whole time. You can text that number at any point and our speaker for the day or someone from our team will respond to you as soon as we can. Because even though right now this is just a video you're watching, we hope that your interaction with us moves from just being content that you consume to a community that you're committed to. And one quick easy step you can take to get more involved with our community here is to join our Facebook group. Simply go to our Facebook page at Church for Rest of Us and click on the tab in the corner that says groups. You'll see one there for our in-person campus and one that says Community Christian Anywhere group. That is the one for you. Simply click on that group and then click the join button to take one easy step towards being more involved with our community here. I hope to see you there. And right now, let's get started with our main idea of the day. Well, thanks for joining in with us today for part three of a conversation that we've called Christians in the Age of Outrage. My name's Jason, and I'm a pastor here at Community Christian Church. And when I say we're having a conversation, I really do mean that. I mean, I'd love to hear from you. So if you have a question about anything today that you hear, or if you want to know more about our church, or if you just want to let us know that you're out there and that you're watching, just text me at that number on the screen at any time, and I'll respond. Now, if you missed the first two parts of this conversation, you can go back and catch up right here on our YouTube channel. But what we've said so far, and what I think we all know for sure, is that people in our country, we're becoming more and more divided. And it seems as if everyone is outraged about almost everything, especially in the world of social media. But as followers of Jesus, we wanna follow his example to love everyone always. We don't wanna be people who only point fingers or who just vent anger or place blame. The problems in our world, they're not gonna be solved that way. We need to start with we, the church, with us. What can we do to make things better and bring Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God to reality in our communities? Now, maybe you're here today and you're joining in and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian. Well, I think today's conversation is still gonna be very valuable for you to engage in. Maybe today is gonna give you a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus than maybe you've ever seen before. And maybe you can decide whether this is something that you wanna explore further. And again, if you do, 
just text me, let me know about it. But to get into today's discussion, I wanna tell you the story of an extraordinary person. He's found in the historical records of the ancient Jewish people. It's in the Jewish scriptures, which we Christians call the Old Testament in the Bible. Now around 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, destroyed the city walls, and he took a bunch of guys prisoner. He kind of just put an end to Israel being a superpower. Then 50 years later, well, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Now a king named Cyrus is in charge. Well, Cyrus comes in and he looks around at all these foreigners that the Babylonians had conquered and they'd brought into their nation and he does a really interesting thing. He sends about 50,000 Jewish people back home to Israel to rejuvenate the nation and the economy. And things go not great, but they're okay. They sort of rebuild their temple. The economy got a little better, but the walls were still in shambles. The nation was still deep in debt. Well, a lot of time goes by and Persia gets another king. His name is Artaxerxes. And he just happens to have an official that works for him who's Jewish. In fact, this guy actually had been born in captivity. All he ever knew was the Persian Empire. But he's very smart and he's very close to the king. His name was Nehemiah. So one day, Nehemiah's brother comes to visit him in Persia and he had just traveled from Jerusalem. So Nehemiah asks his brother, he says, how are things going back home in the homeland? His brother says, Nehemiah, I don't know how to tell you this. It's worse back there than it's ever been. The gates are burned. There are no walls to protect the city. Things are disorganized. The economy's terrible. Most of our citizens, they're enslaved or they're in debt. They've even had to start leveraging their homes, their businesses, their crops. Some of them have had to use their wives and children as collateral just to get loans to take out and just to survive. Things are absolutely chaotic. Well, as you can imagine, Nehemiah, he's heartbroken when he hears this. In fact, he weeps and he prays to God and he says, God, show me what I can do to help. One day, when he felt like the timing was right, Nehemiah asks King Artaxerxes, he says, can I take a leave of absence? I want to go back to my homeland. I want to do something. Now, amazingly, the king tells him, yeah. In fact, he says, I'll even do you one better. I'll make you the governor of that region. In fact, I'm going to give you letters to every single king and leader between here and there as you travel. And I'm going to tell them to support you and to help you and to give you anything you need to make your journey successful, as long as you promise to come back eventually and serve me. So Nehemiah spends weeks. He pulls together people and materials, and he gets the wealth that the king had gave to him. And all along the way on his journey, he collects lumber and everything that he would need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, eventually he arrives at the city of Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the Jewish people who are there, they think to themselves, well, here comes another governor. He's just gonna add more taxes. He's gonna take from us, just like all the other previous governors have in the past. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He, he gets a, a place to live in the city. And then every night he goes out into the city and he looks around and he surveys the walls and sees what's going on inside the city. Then he gathers all the people around and he inspires them. He gives them this amazing vision of how they're gonna rebuild Jerusalem. And he organizes a program to get it done. Well, as soon as they begin their work, 
Nehemiah realizes that there's one thing that's gonna hold them back more than anything else if it's not fixed. He finds out that the, the leaders of the household in Jerusalem, they, they were so indebted to the surrounding rich people and the surrounding nations and even merchants that they were afraid if they missed a single payment on their loans, they're gonna lose their land, their farms, their families, their children. And this was what was keeping them from fully focusing on the work of rebuilding the city. So Nehemiah decides to do something. He wants to fix the economy. He starts by taking his own money, that money that the king had given him to do his job. And he starts going around paying off all the people's debts so they get their land back and their homes back and they can put them back in their own names. He created a whole bunch of jobs. He paid off all these debts. And suddenly there's energy, there's activity back in the community. And things really do begin to change under Nehemiah's leadership. They're going really well. But in this process of paying off all these loans, Nehemiah discovers something and it makes him furious. He discovers that there were a lot of wealthy Jews in Jerusalem and they kind of saw this whole thing as a business opportunity for themselves. See, now they see that there's a lot of money back in the economy. It's going around paying off these debts. So these wealthy, powerful people, they would come behind Nehemiah and they would trick their fellow Jews to get back into more debt. They would get them to leverage more of their property again. And Nehemiah finds out what's going on. He spent this enormous amount of his own wealth to get these workers out of debt. And now he sees his own Jewish brothers undoing all that he's done. And he's furious. And Nehemiah actually writes about this in the Jewish scriptures. Here's what he says. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and these officials and I told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And at the meeting, I said to them, we're doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who've had to sell themselves to these pagan foreigners. And, but you, you're selling them back into slavery again. In other words, he says, Guys, I've spent my own money to solve this problem, to free up our people, to rebuild our nation, and you're taking advantage of my generosity and my patriotism to make yourselves richer. Nehemiah is saying this to rich and powerful people. Now you think about that. Can you imagine that happening today? Can you imagine the tension in a meeting like that? But watch how these rich, powerful people respond. It's not what you'd expect them to say. In fact, the text tells us they had nothing to say in their defense. Now that's really amazing. These are the richest, most powerful guys around. They own the farms, they own the businesses, they own the offices, and, and they make decisions. And here they are being faced down by a guy who's, well, relatively new to town. He doesn't really have any kind of leverage other than the fact that he's got these letters from this king of Persia who's far, far away from them. And they're just speechless. Well, the story goes on. Nehemiah says, then I press further. What you're doing, it's not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? He's saying, what does this say to the world around us? You're taking advantage of your own people, people who aren't as educated or as wealthy or as privileged as you are. And they're your brothers and sisters. What are you doing? It's not right. He says, I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, we have been lending the people money and grain, but now let's stop this business of charging interest. You need to restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and their homes this very day. 
and repay the interest you charged when you lent them the money, the grain, the wine, and the olive oil. Now again, I want you to watch what their response was to Nehemiah. They replied, we'll give back everything. We'll demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. <laughs> now Nehemiah looks at him and he says, uh, I don't know, I'm not buying it. So look at what he does next. He says, then I called the priests and I made the nobles and the officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and I said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. And again, the whole assembly responded, amen. They praised the Lord and the people did exactly as they had promised. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, this can't be a true story because that, that never happens. See, it's hard for us to imagine a president or a governor facing down the rich and the powerful, people who have taken advantage of poor or uneducated people. And it's even harder for us to imagine those same rich, powerful people going, yeah, you're right, and we're gonna pay back everything we took, and we're even gonna pay back the interest too. But there's a part of this story that I haven't told you yet. See, Nehemiah had an advantage that the other governors who'd been in this place before didn't have. Nehemiah had something beyond the authority that went with being a governor. And it had taken him about 12 years to earn it. But he had something that had given him huge amounts of credibility and influence. And it was so powerful that when he spoke to these people who had taken advantage of their brothers and sisters, they were shamed. They were moved to do the right thing. So, what was it about Nehemiah that I haven't told you? What gave him that influence? Well, we read about it in his book. For the entire 12 years that I, Nehemiah, was governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. See, when Nehemiah showed up as the governor, he was entitled to get a percentage of all the grain and all the crops and the land and the wealth. He had the right to tax the people and it would have been lawful for him to do so, but he didn't do it. He goes on. The former governors, in contrast, they laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. In other words, these previous governors, they're surrounded by all their cronies and they just went out and leveraged their position and their authority and they used it for their own benefit. But because I, Nehemiah, feared God, I didn't act that way. Now, isn't that amazing? Not because he had to, not because someone made him put pressure on him, but out of respect for God. See, Nehemiah was different. He says, I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. I required all my servants to spend time just working on the wall. Now this right here was unheard of at that time. See, the way you bettered yourself in their culture was you had to get up as much land as you could. You had to own land and resources. But Nehemiah and his guys, they said, no, not us. We're not gonna leverage our power or our wealth to become wealthier and more powerful. We've got a job to do, and that's what we're gonna focus on. He continues, I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table. 
besides all the visitors from all the other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included an ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet, he says, I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people had already carried a heavy burden. See, that was Nehemiah's advantage. That's what gave him his credibility and his influence. See, when he stepped up and he demanded those rich and powerful people to do what was best for their nation, they were shamed into doing it because they knew they were looking at a guy whose words had matched his actions at the deepest level. In fact, to a level where it was actually costing him something financially. See, Nehemiah had something that went above the authority that came with his position. Nehemiah had moral authority. So what's moral authority? Well, it's the credibility that you earn by just simply walking your talk. When you consistently live out what you believe in your own real life, that's moral authority. It's when people look at you and they say, look, I may not believe like that guy believes. In fact, we may, dis we may disagree on a lot of things, but there is no doubt he or she lives out exactly what they believe. That person speaks the truth and they're committed to do whatever they say. No hidden agenda, no hidden motives, no separation between what they say and what they do. See, here's the truth. Whatever position that you might have in your life, you could be a father, mother, boss, teacher, even the president, that position, it gives you some authority, but it's your moral authority that gives you credibility and influence. So let's move from looking at this ancient biblical example to a real world what if kind of situation. See, I think we all want moral authority and influence, but often the choices that have to be made in order to get there, well, they aren't quite so easy. So as you watch this next video, here's the question I want you to consider. How would I respond in this situation, really? Not what you hope you would do, what would you really do? Hi, honey. I said, hi, honey. Oh, hi. What's wrong with you? You look like you lost your best friend. Well, not yet, but give me time. What are you talking about? What is that? It's the uh, application for the bar exam. Are you kidding me? It's finally here. After four years of studying and cramming and working and working and working, it's finally here. I mean, not that I minded all the late hours and extra jobs and I spent myself while you were studying at the library, but just know I'm very excited about being married to a lawyer rather than a student. Well, here's hoping. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, I get it. You're nervous about taking the test. Honey, you're going to do great. You have a brilliant mind, amazing discernment, and you have wisdom beyond your years. It's going to be a piece of cake. Yeah, it's not the, not the exam I'm really worried about. Then what? The exam is basically broken into two parts. There's one part that examines your knowledge of the law, and then there's another part that deals with your fitness to be a lawyer. Like how many ambulances you can catch in an hour? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that I promised no more lawyer jokes to your face. Look, this is serious, okay? 
I have to disclose anything and everything, any speeding tickets, anything about our finances, any moral or ethical misbehavior, any of it, I have to disclose it. Okay, this is something that every lawyer has to do before they take the bar exam. Okay, well, if every lawyer that I know has had to take this, then it cannot be that tough. Would you stop it? Would you lighten up? You're the biggest Boy Scout I know. Just tell them about yourself and let's move on. That's the problem, Vicky. I'm, I'm not a Boy Scout. I've done something that even you don't know about. And once I tell the Bar Association, there's, there's going to be trouble. Okay. Steve, you are really starting to freak me out. What are you talking about? It was, it was when I was an undergrad. There was this little cheating incident. Okay, it wasn't little. I, I stole a test, and I got caught, and I got taken in front of the Student Discipline Council, and I almost got expelled. That's it? What's it? I mean, that's it? You cheated? And you think that makes you unfit to be a lawyer? I mean, hello, have you heard any of my jokes? Don't you get it? What am I supposed to say to people? Am I supposed to go, oh, don't worry, you can trust me because when I lie, I tell you about it. I made a calculated decision to steal a test so that I could get a better grade and I lied about it. And, and don't tell me that that makes me a better lawyer for it because I'm tired of the jokes. Are you trying to tell me that this could prevent you from being a lawyer? I don't know. All I know is that dishonesty on this one form is the number one reason you fail the bar exam. Okay, but you were a kid then. I wasn't... I was 21! I wasn't a kid. Well, do they really go that far into your past where they check with your college's records? I mean, what? I don't... I don't know. I, I haven't told them yet. Well, then there's your answer right there. It's not an answer, Vicky. I've been down that road and back, and I'm not going to lie about this. Well, maybe you just don't lie about it. Maybe, maybe you just don't tell them about it. Steve, why would we risk everything that, you've, that we've worked for over something that they don't know about and probably won't find out about? Because I'll know about it. I'll know. We will know. For the first time in my life, I feel like I'm going down the right track. I feel like I actually know what God wants me to do so that we can have the kind of life, that we can be the kind of people, that I can be the person that I know I can be. And I know what God wants me to do, and no matter how hard or how difficult it is to do, I still know what it is He wants me to do. So this is about God. You think that God wants you to tell them? Yes, I think so. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. All I know is that every time I pray, I just see this big sign that says, tell the truth. Well, does anywhere on that wall say, be employed? Or is that just God's will for me? That's not fair. Not fair? You want to talk about not fair? I know this isn't fair for you either. I mean, I think about that all the time. That's why this is so difficult for me. Difficult for you? Well, we wouldn't want this to be difficult for you, no. I've just worked two jobs to get you through law school so that right when you get to the finish line, you can wear your I feel so good about myself award. Don't you think I've thought about all of this? Don't you think I've tried to figure all of this out? I spend time trying to rationalize things to God, promising him that if, 
If he can get me through this, then I will do free legal work for people, for under-resourced people in our church. I don't know what to do. And either way I go, I don't know how it's going to end. Well, you just let me know which way ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Having the integrity that leads to moral authority and influence, it isn't always an easy choice to make. So, did you have any thoughts on what you do in a situation like that? Maybe you've been in a dilemma where you struggled to make the right decision. You can reach out and tell me about it by texting that number on the screen right now. But here's my guess. No matter who you are, when you heard that story about Nehemiah, you said to yourself, you know, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of leader I would like to be. I would love to know that my life has that kind of moral authority, that people would take me seriously, not because they agree with me, but because they know there's no hidden agenda with me. There's no separation between what I'm asking them to do and what I would do myself. Because see, you probably know someone like that, and you know how much their words mean to you, right? Because even when you're not sure you understand them or agree with them completely, you're willing to lean in and listen because you know he or she, they're sincere. Now here's where this story and this idea intersect with you and me as Christians living in an age of outrage and division and polarization. See, one of the great debates that we've had as a nation over the past few decades is this question. Should there be any connection between someone's personal life and their authority or their position specifically within our government, our leaders? In other words, does it really matter how an elected official handles his or her personal finances? Does it really matter how they handle their personal morality? If a public official says one thing, and, but in their personal life they practice something completely different, does it matter if those two things don't really line up? Well, it's been my observation that we as Americans, we voted on that question, and our answer has been yes and no. <laughs> Here's what I mean. When a political figure that I disagree with or who's on the other side of the political aisle in the other political party for me, when they do something immoral, then we say, well, it matters. They should be held accountable. We need to get them out of office. But when someone messes up on my side of the political aisle, well, then it doesn't matter so much. There's always a good explanation for it. Or someone's lying, or they're just being taken out of context. In fact, I can remember a certain president back in the 90s who was caught in an inappropriate relationship, and then he lied about it. And all of his supporters said his private life shouldn't matter. His enemy said, well, it does matter. A president should have moral integrity. Well, let's fast forward a few years. And when those people who were calling for moral integrity had finally gotten their guy into the White House and then his inappropriate behavior was revealed, it was like all of a sudden, everybody switched sides. Everybody switched opinions. And see, this is what we've been talking about in this series of conversations. Most Christians today we aren't looking at our politics through the lens of our faith. We're living out our faith 
through the lens of our politics. But if we were to turn this thing around, I think we would all see it differently. As followers of Jesus, come on, shouldn't we just agree with God regardless of who's in office? And all throughout the Jewish scriptures, the Christian scriptures, and come on guys, even common sense will tell us this. Yes, it matters if there's a disconnect between what people say publicly and what they do privately. If we want our leaders to have credibility, to have influence, then it has to matter. So we shouldn't feel like it's a lot for us to ask those who represent us to be beyond reproach in their personal finances or their personal morality or their personal ethics. It's not too much to ask our leaders to be Nehemiahs. And I don't care if they're Republican Nehemiahs or Democrat Nehemiahs. It's not too much to say, look, if you're there to do a job, do the job. Make it the priority. And yes, we're going to hold you accountable to how you live your personal life because it matters. We should call our leaders to be men and women who lead, not just with the authority that just comes with their position, but with the influence that comes from their moral authority. We should want men and women in leadership whose walk matches their talk. And we want them to value that more than they value re-election. See, I just think that if you get a Republican Nehemiah in a room with a Democrat Nehemiah, in fact, if you fill the room with a bunch of Nehemiahs, they're going to figure out how to fix this economy or how to fix health care or how to fight racism and injustice, how to lead us through disasters or pandemics or any other problem we face because Nehemiahs are there to do a job without a hidden agenda. And if you get people like that into the same room, even if they don't agree on everything, their integrity, their moral authority will guide them. And they'll start working together and they'll figure it out. Because when your life is in sync with what you believe and with what you say, then you see clearly and you can make wise decisions. So for me, personally, and this is just me, I would much rather vote for people who are on the other side of me politically who are Nehemiahs than people who are on my side of the political persuasion if they have inconsistency in their lives. Because integrity within a person is what causes them to have integrity in their decisions. Solomon, he was the wisest king who ever lived. He said this one time. He said, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful, they are destroyed by their duplicity. Now that word duplicity, it just means to be deceitful, to say one thing and do another. And duplicity, it seeps into every part of your life. Come on, think about it. If you're willing to lie to your wife, who would you not lie to? If you lie to your children, who else would you not lie to? If you're being dishonest with your own personal money, why wouldn't you be dishonest with our money? And come on, haven't we seen this play out in our world over and over and over again? So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, can I just encourage you? Actually, I'll go further. It's more than that. I'm begging you. Regardless of which side of the political aisle you sit right now, can we just start to begin to view our candidates and leaders not through the lens of our politics, but through the lens of integrity and moral authority? And I think it starts with us praying this prayer 
God, give us Nehemiahs. Give us men and women of integrity. Because here's the thing. Like we said at the beginning of this series, this is not about pointing fingers. It's not about placing blame. We have to start with ourselves. We have to look in our own hearts. Because here's the truth. You know what all of our elected officials and leaders all have in common? They were elected by us. See, this is about we, not they. And as easy as it get is it, it is to get all amped up and outraged about what he did and what she did and what he said and what she said, if the church of Jesus, men, women, young, old, white, black, Hispanic, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Independent, or whatever you are, if just the followers of Jesus in our nation would say, God, beyond what I think politically, we just want Nehemiahs in our White House, in our Congress, in our local government. God, would you give us men and women whose walk matches their talk personally, politically, professionally, at every level? If God answers that prayer, we could see a whole lot of change in our world. But we have to look beyond politics. We have to look beyond our worldviews or our prejudices. We have to stop just being outraged at the way things are and begin to look at ourselves and begin to pray, God, would you please give us Nehemiahs? And would you give me the courage to make a decision, not based on my political persuasion or my worldview or the way that I was raised, but on what the scriptures say, on what I know is true, on what I know that ultimately you want for our nation. We need men and women who have more than the authority that just comes with the position they hold. We need men and women who have moral authority. And like we've been saying for this entire series, it has to start with us, the church. How can we choose leaders of integrity if we haven't become people of integrity? So, right now, we're gonna enter into a time of guided prayer. We're gonna invite God to examine our hearts and point out the places where we need to change. We're gonna confess those things to God. We're gonna ask Him to help us become people of integrity. So no matter where you are right now in your beliefs or on your spiritual journey, I hope you'll participate and you'll engage with God during this time. So let's quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, and follow along as we're led in prayer. As we pray, read the words in bold aloud with me. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this moment with us. We ask you to quiet our hearts and our minds and speak any words to us that we need, no matter how uncomfortable they are to hear. Allow us to hear these words from the Bible directly from your heart. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey His laws and search for Him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in His paths. Father, we confess that we have not only walked in your paths. We admit that we have all compromised our integrity. We have all, whether in thought, word, or deed, done evil before you. Would you now reveal to us ways in which we have failed to obey your law of love?
Let us continue to pray. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. Father, we now ask for your mercy and grace. We ask for your tender and loving forgiveness to wash our lives clean of all evil. And we ask for your grace to empower us to live in ways that reflect your loving commands. Reveal to each of us what our next step is in living with integrity. Lord, hear our deepest desires. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. It is in Jesus' name we live and move and breathe, and it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Well, after a moment of reflection and confession like we just had, I think it's a perfect time for us to take the symbols of communion together. You know, one of the writers of Scripture tells us that we should examine ourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Because after we've examined ourselves and we're made aware of our own sinfulness and our need for change, we're then brought into contact with these symbols that remind us of the love and the forgiveness of God for those sins. So. If you'd like to join us today in taking communion, go ahead and get some bread or a cracker and some type of juice or just something to drink. And let's eat and drink and remember what Jesus has done for us. So let's take the bread and let's remember, this is the body of Christ. Jesus laid down his life by dying on the cross for our sins and to make a way for us to live in the kingdom of God forever. So let's eat and remember. Now let's take the cup and remember, this is the blood of Christ shed for you and for me for the forgiveness of our sins. God no longer holds our sins against us. We're cleansed and we're free. Let's drink and remember. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for rescuing us. We are no longer slaves to sin. You've set us free. And now would you help us to become people of love the way you've loved us and people of integrity. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all, take it all. My life in your hands. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all, take it all. My life in your hands. I lay down my life. I take up my cross. Jesus, you are my God. Whatever. for you and that what you take away from our time together is that God loves you more than you can imagine. As always, if you want to talk to someone about what you've experienced today, please text the number you see on screen right now. Someone from our team will be in contact with you soon. And if you haven't done so yet, please go to our Facebook page at Church for Rest of Us, click on the tab that says group and join our Community Christian Anywhere group to get a little more involved with our community here. We're so thankful for you joining in with us today. And as you leave today, 
Don't forget, no matter what you think about God, He can't stop thinking about you.